pray. Father, we're about to step into a time to look at words that were written 2,000 years ago on another part of this planet. People who spoke Greek. We speak English. These things were written, though, because your word speaks, you wanted to speak to us. So God, we believe that you want to speak through the text this morning. What was written 2,000 years ago is still relevant to our life today. So God, we come before you as a group of people, anxious to hear from you, to understand what it was that you wanted us to know about your nature and character so that we can directly apply it to our lives, God, so that we can speak into the lives of those who surround us, our friends and our family members, people that we work with. God, use us to be a light in their life. But speak to our life specifically this morning. Give us insight through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have it with you, to John chapter 1, and um, I'm going to read to you where we've been at so far, so we can get caught up, especially if you haven't been here in the last two weeks since we started this study the portrait. Um, The message, the teaching is a little bit shorter this morning than normal. I had a bit of a conflict interruption in my schedule this week, and it kind of took away some of my study time, so a little bit shorter teaching, but um, nonetheless, I believe God can even teach through the short stuff, so let's go with uh, starting with John chapter 1 and verse 1, just to remind ourselves of where we've been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And he's talking about you, church. He's talking about you as the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're going to pick up this morning at verse 14. It's where we left off last week. You're going to find as we work through John that John uses lots of legal terms, terms that appear only in courtrooms typically. These are words that are facts, not opinions. Words like material and words such as specific marturias, meaning witness, and testify. Because John is an eyewitness, he can specifically stand as a witness, even in something as formal as a courtroom, and give a testimony to that which he personally saw, that which he observed. 
Why is he so emphatic in laying this out for us? Even to the point of using legal terms. Because nothing like this had ever happened before. Nothing like this ever happens again. God coming from heaven, eternity, to dwell with man. And so John really wants to make sure we get it down. So to to us, these words that we're about to read may seem old and redundant, especially if you grew up in church. But they're fresh, and they're new, and they're awesome. They were revolutionary to these people who received this note. They are revolutionary to us. It should frame our mindset to help us understand. So John, as an eyewitness, tries to give us an understanding of what he saw. The best way I can put it in context for you is like this. Um, Every few years, I get to go to Alaska and do some fishing. like to go up there, go up there with a few friends. And my cousin happens to be a captain of a charter boat up there, so we spend time with him. One particular trip when we were up there, we're out on a boat fishing in the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean, and... I'm just panning the horizon with my camera, just, just overwhelmed with the splendor of what I was seeing, and just moving my camera across the horizon, and I start hearing in my ear the sound of a whale, the blow coming out of the blowhole, and one of my friends on the boat pointed them out, and they're moving across the surface, and then they just went down deep. So I'm keeping my camera over there, and as I watch this area, one whale just like that blew out of the water, and I dropped my camera, just shocked, staring at it. My eyes were huge because I could feel the spray of the water. I could taste the salt on my lips. I could hear the sound of the seagulls in the air. And listening to the crushing sound of that whale hitting the surface of the water, I was in shock. And my cousin, who's always thinking about how he can drum up new business and get get commercialism out of this, turns to me and says, you got that on film, right? You got that. And he sees the camera down at my side. Oh, you didn't get that. How can you put in context what you witness with your own eyes? How can you taste the salt on your lips? How can you know what it's like to touch and feel the king of the universe, walking among you. So John's building to this climax, trying to help us understand this wonder and this majesty of the God of the universe coming among us. And so he says in verse 18 that there's these pictures that are painted because Jesus explained him so that you can taste the salt air, so that you can hear the crush of the water. So you can personally see through your own eyes what it was like for Jesus to be at that wedding in Cana and turn water into wine, to walk on water, to call Lazarus, come forth from the grave so that you can witness through his eyes. And my mind, church, is taxed beyond its ability to comprehend these truths. They are so overwhelming. I seek to fathom them every day. And I know it's going to fuel my worship in eternity to comprehend that God came down here. So this is the climax we're building up to here in verse 14. And by the way, at this point, we've heard descriptive words of who Jesus is. We've heard he's called the Word, big W. He's called life. He's called light. But he's not used his name at this point. We don't even know who this is. We just get these descriptors. So here's some more descriptors, verse 14. 
And the word, big W, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, understand who John's writing to. At this specific time, the Greeks and the Jews, and they had a framework in their mind of what logos is, what word, the word, big W, is logos. And they had this concept, the Greeks had the concept that this logos is a force or an entity who holds the entire universe together and makes everything happen in creation. And the Jews understood that the word was the way in which God acted among his people. But they had this framework incomplete And so John almost slaps them upside the head by using this phrase, and the word became carne, became flesh. The word became muscle. And this is anathema to the Greeks and the Jews because they wanted to be separated from this body. They believed the body of man to be fallen. To think of God becoming a man in his body was anathema to them. This is inconceivable. What you're seeing here is the most concise biblical statement of the incarnation. Absolute descriptor in four words that God came to earth. And in these four words is a staggering thought. It expresses the reality that your God left heaven and took on humanity. That the infinite became finite. That eternity entered time. This is the way that Paul summed it up in Colossians 1.15. says it much better than I can. He is the image of the invisible God, the ikone. The word we get, English language, is icon, iconic. Jesus is the icon of Jesus, of God, the ikone, the statue, if you will, the representation, the visible reminder of God. So the visible, invisible, became visible. That's what we're told in Scripture. The creator entered his creation. I don't know how many synonyms I can give you. This is just staggering to comprehend. So when it says the word became flesh, it doesn't mean that the word, Jesus, God, the Son, stopped being God. But we'll come back to that in just a minute. I want you to see this word flesh on the screen so you see the definition for how this was used. The word is sarks. In Greek, this is what it means, man's physical being, your flesh and blood, your bones. Literally, this is the descriptor, flesh strictly the meat of a biological being, by extension, the body as opposed to the soul and the spirit. So John's writing, God became muscle. When the Olympians went out to work in the early Greek games, they didn't go out to what we would use the word muscle in English. They went out to build sarks. That's the word that's used for muscle. They went out to build bulk. Jesus became muscle, flesh and blood. So the implication is this, not only that he became flesh, which means he was fully human, but also that he suffered the same way that you suffer. He knew what it felt like to feel pain. He also knows all our temptations, every single temptation. We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet he sinned not. He never gave in. So God did become fully man, yet remained fully God. It doesn't mean his deity was diminished. It just means that it was veiled. 
So his ability to be all-knowing, his ability to be all-seeing, his ability to be all-powerful is veiled in human flesh. That's what we're told in Scripture. This is the way we're told in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this is like theology 101. But God entered our realm alongside the creatures that he made, wearing flesh and blood, walking among us, and he experienced the same kind of life we experienced. Jesus, God the Son, walked the streets of Nazareth. And it's inconceivable, yet it's inexpressible, and it's inexplicably linked with God. We can't understand it. Yet, he did it. Deity and manhood linked, producing for us one thing, the Son of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The two linked together. Never before, never again. And he says it to help us understand it this way. He dwelt among us. So let's understand what that phrase is because this incarnation is utterly beyond human comprehension. So because we can't get the word became flesh, he uses this word, he dwelt among us. This is the definition for it, the word skeno. Look with me up on the screen. God gave us another word portrait here. Skeno, to live in a tent or to tent or in camp, to reside as God did in the tabernacle, to dwell. You know, there's many different versions of the Bible. There's the New International Version, the New American Standard Version. That's the version I use when I preach. There's the Living Bible. There's the Schofield Version. And there's one that came out a couple years ago called The Message, written by Eugene Peterson. Now, it's a paraphrased version of the Bible. It's put in a modern man's language to help us understand thoughts. But as a theologian, you wouldn't necessarily want to drill down into it to say you can get a lot of theology out of it. Except for he really captured the thought well. Look with me on the screen at how he said the word became flesh. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Okay? Jesus moved across the street into the hood. I don't know if that messes with your theology or not, but that's what happened. God moved into the hood. And he's part of this realm that we live in. Why? Just in case you're new to church. You've never heard this before? Why in the world would God come to earth? Look with me up on the screen because Hebrews really explains this well. Hebrews 2.14. Since the children, that's us, the children of creation, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. You see the past tense word there? Had the power of death? He no longer, Satan no longer has the power of death. It was taken from him at the cross. When Jesus was resurrected, there was no more power of death by Satan. Jesus now controls that. He took the chains and the keys. Remember that? You're told that in Scripture. He took the chains and the keys of death. He conquered it. So Hebrews goes on to explain. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren, meaning us, in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he pitched his tent 
among us. You ever gone camping with friends? Raise your hand if you've ever gone camping. You have gone camping with friends or family members, okay? It's very real, isn't it? It's very intimate. See, we have sophisticated ways of going camping today. We have RV units, and we have our space and our walls. But go tent camping sometime. Stay in the same tent with your friends. It's very raw, okay? See, inside tents, there's no walls typically. You get to learn things about people when you go tenting with them, don't you? Okay? So we're told here that God knew he pitched his tent among us and tabernacled with us. That's what we're told. Do you know that throughout eternity, God will tent with you again? That's what we're told in Scripture, this word picture. You remember back in Revelation, we looked at this? Look on the screen, Revelations 21. God is going to tent among his people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, meaning the tent, of God is among men, and he will skenew, he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now learn something there about your God. That intimacy that takes place, to be able to reach out and wipe tears from someone's eyes, you're within arm's reach, aren't you? You're inside his tent. He dwells among us. He dwelt among us as Jesus, we're told. It will happen again. So John goes on to say, we're so close to him, we saw his glory, the glory as of from the only begotten of the Father. So Jesus, we understand, manifested God's glory in a way never before seen, a clear reality, yet it was still veiled in human flesh. So these guys got to literally see Jesus walk on water, turn water into wine, call people back from the dead, and they saw a glory of God they had never seen before, yet... It was still reduced. It was still veiled in flesh. But he uses this phrase here that causes a lot of people to stumble. Probably a lot of people that you know. He says he is the only begotten from the Father. False teachers really camp on that phrase, especially among Jehovah's Witness, especially among Mormons, especially among Muslims. In those three things I've just suggested, They believe that Jesus is a created being, not the Son of God. But I'm going to show you how you understand that they're wrong. This is not what Scripture is saying. It's not suggesting there was a time when the Son was not. There was never a time when Jesus was not. They're suggesting he was brought into being by saying he was a begotten Son. So here's the word that's used here. You might want to write this one down in your Bible, but it's monogenes. You'll see the definition up on the screen. Monogenes, only begotten, it does not imply, and by the way, this is coming from a Greek lexicon, a literal definition for this word, does not imply Jesus was created. The term does not refer to origin. Rather, it means unique, the only one of his kind. This is used another time in the Bible in Hebrews 11 when it's talking specifically about Isaac, the son of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says that Isaac was the monogenes of Abraham. Now, why is that significant? Because Abraham had other sons who were not the sons of the covenant. 
So scripture says Isaac was the monogenes of Abraham, meaning the son of the covenant, the only one of his kind. That's the same way this phrase is used here when it says Jesus is the only one of his kind of the father. There is no other one like him, not a created being. So it's not referring to origin. And then it says that he's full of grace and truth, and there's a strong implication here, one for you specifically. He's full of grace and truth because these are the two biggies of our faith. Jesus is the full expression of God's grace. Jesus is the full expression of God's truth. Everything about grace is found within him. Everything about truth is found within him. All the truth to save is found in him. That's why Jesus said, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I am the truth. You remember when Jesus is in the courtroom standing with Pilate? He's about to be executed. He's engaging in conversation with Pilate. Pilate's not engaging him in such a way that he can defend himself. He doesn't have an interest in defending himself. He just talks to him about who he is. So pick with me up on the screen in John 18, 37, and look what Jesus says about who he is. Therefore, Pilate said to him, you are so, you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus is all about the truth. That's why he came to talk about the truth. So here's a question for you. Can you have faith if you haven't known that Jesus is the truth? If he says, all the truth to be saved is found in me, you hear individuals from around the world of different beliefs say, I'm a person of faith. Well, faith in what? Faith in faith? How can you have faith in nothing? Your faith is in the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. This is said much better by Paul. Look at me on the screen, Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So right there within that verse, church, you hear it, you know it, you believe it, and it's promised to you. You understand that? You see that? Look at it closely. Hear it, know it, believe it, promise it. You heard the message. You listened to the truth. You believe it. You take it inside, and you know it for sure, and then it's promised to you that you are sealed, and no one can take that from you. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. So the implication here is the one who is truth, this one who is truth, he can be completely trusted, trusted for everything. So even when the earth shakes, Jesus says, that's not the end yet. The end's coming. Even when houses crumble, it's not the end. I've got everything in a plan, and it's working out my plan. So this one can be trusted. So next, John looks like he's taking a bit of a rabbit trail in verse 15, and he starts talking about John the Baptist. Understand, John the disciple is writing about John the Baptist. That's what he refers to in verse 15. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. 
I thought I'd get off onto John today and who he is and the narrative there, but we won't do that. We'll save that for another time. Because specifically, we can see here that John understands who Jesus is. He says, he existed before me. Now, how can that be? If you know your Bible, you know that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus, biologically. But yet, John the Baptist says, he's before me. This word existed in all time. He came way before me. And so John the disciple writes, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Grace upon grace means he provides for all his people's needs. He gives you abundantly a supply which is never exhausted, and it just rolls and flows. Grace upon grace. Question, how rich is God? How wealthy is God the Father? He says, my grace is in abundant supply. As a matter of fact, this is the way it's said in Scripture, Ephesians 2.6. We are raised up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word that's used there is hyperbalo or hooporbalo. It means without measure. You can't measure it. It just rolls God's grace after another, after another, after another, after another. There's no limit to it. It's an inexhaustible supply. So he moves back into verse 17, which also looks like a rabbit trail, but here's what he's doing. He's setting the hook, and he's reeling us in. Look closely at it. This is where we're going to end today. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And at this point, you want to say, finally, this is the first time he used Jesus' name. Up till now, you've seen the word, light, life, flesh, but you haven't seen his name. Now his name is mentioned. But first he says the law was given by God through Moses. This law, the Old Testament, given on Mount Sinai to Moses, is permeated with truth and the standards of God's holiness and his righteousness. The law, what it does is reveal your need for the grace, the abundant grace. And he just reveals to us we also need forgiveness. So that's the purpose of the law. But he says, but grace? That came through Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus brought it to us. This is the way that Paul referred to it in Galatians 3.24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Is your tutor your enemy? Well, maybe if you're in math, it feels like it, okay? But your tutor, the one who coaches you, is your friend. The law, the Old Testament commandments, is your friend because it points the way to Jesus. It guides us like a tutor so that we may be justified by faith. And so this is how he ends it. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The word that's used here is ginomai. And realized, ginomai, means to cause to be, to generate, or it literally says to become into being, to be assembled. Now think of General Motors. General Motors has assembly plants all over the nation. But there's some plants that make parts we watched an assembly plant or a manufacturing plant over in Howell burn a couple weeks ago. They made components, but they send those components to the Lansing assembly plant. It's the Ginomai place, the place that puts it all together. 
So scripture is saying Jesus is the one who assembled all of God's grace. The fullness of God's grace is found in him, the genomai, completely assembled in Jesus Christ. God was found gracious in the Old Testament, but it wasn't realized until Jesus came. So God is made visible with a clarity that's never before seen. Now, he used some really intimate phrases to wrap this up. He says that no one has seen God at any time. It reminds us that only Jesus, only through him, do we get to see the invisible God. And he ends with this really intimate expression, which reflects the tent we just learned about. He says, who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, if you don't mind circling in your Bible, you might want to circle that. In verse 18, and link with an arrow all the way back to verse 1. Because when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, it's the same phrase, prostantheon. And it means, literally, the bosom buddy is the one who's right next to. God and Jesus are not body, buddy, buddy, uh, never mind. They're father, son, okay? We wouldn't say bosom buddies. We might in the English language. But it means they're so close, they're intimately connected. They're of one mind. They're bonded together. So who is in the bosom of the Father? That means Christ's relationship to the Father is intimate and personal. And it says that he has explained him. This one who is bonded to God the Father has explained him to you and I. So we can see God in nature. We can see God in surfacing whales. We can see God throughout history and how he acts and behaves, how his performance is seen. But we can't see God unless we see Jesus. So the word that's used here is exegesis, exegete. It comes right out of the Greek language. This is what it means, to explain, to unfold, or to lead the way. The little Greek word is exgekomai. And it means that Jesus explained the way to God the Father. He gave us an interpretation. We would be accurate to say Jesus interprets God so that we can understand him. So this God who cannot be known unless he reveals himself became known because Jesus explained him. So he's the answer for your friends. You have friends that know you go to church? They understand that perhaps you're a believer? They might say to you some point, What is God like? You'd say, you want to see what God's like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is God. This is what God looks like. He's the only one qualified to exegete God, to explain him. So here's where I'm ending today. This incarnation, this word that we use a lot around Christmas time, this union of God to man is done in such a way that no one would have ever been able to fathom it or imagine it. No wonder people have such a hard time understanding the gospel. No wonder your friends and family members who are not believers have such a hard time comprehending this because the realities that we deal with, they surpass all of your understanding. It surpasses my understanding. These are profound depths of the Christian revelation. But John reeled us in in such a way that he says, the word, the logos, genomai, sarks. The word became flesh. And it would cause the Greeks and the Jews to go, what? What are you saying? So he's built his case well. You understand why it's taken 17 verses to get to this point? To understand it's taken us three weeks. 
to get to this point to say, wow, John, you really laid this out. We understand now as we step into next week, we start the stories. Jesus talking to John the Baptist, encountering people on the streets. This one who stands at the Jordan River and John says, man, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. That's why these things were written down because these guys got it. God became flesh. Once the incarnation is grasped as a reality for you, all the other issues about understanding Scripture dissolve and melt away. This is the biggest deal, that God would become one of us. So John built the case very well, very methodically. So what have we learned this morning? First of all, Jesus is fully God and fully human, full humanity. He's full of grace and full of truth and intimately bound together with God the Father. That's why I call this Theology 101. Wouldn't you hate to see how much longer we would have gone if I had more time? Okay, we'll stop for today. Let me pray with you. Father, I look forward to being with this family, with this church next week, to talk about and to learn about this Jesus as he walks the streets of our world, to see him dunked into water, to see him turn water into wine. I'm excited for it, Father. But let us leave here today, God, with just the knowledge and the understanding, even though we can't comprehend it, that you loved us so much that you caused your son to take on flesh and be just like one of us, to feel the pain that we feel, to feel the temptations that we feel, and yet to show that he was totally about your purposes. God, I ask that you would take these truths and seal them deep in our heart. Be with us this week as we go out of this place. Make us more bold for your kingdom because of these things we know to be truth. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have an excellent week.